This podcast is part of the Bomb Pod Media Network. A big storm had blown in, and the sky was filled with dark clouds in all directions. As he rode past the archway, he noticed the sky through its opening was blue. No clouds were visible. Dismounting, he walked cautiously toward the formation and peered through. The mountains on the other side hadn't changed, but the sky was clear. Looking around the corner of the structure, the sky was once again covered with dark clouds. Fear gripped him, and he rode off. Some believe John was looking into another time period through the portal. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. If you are new to Weird Darkness, here you will find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, unsolved, and unexplained. I'm always looking for stories of the dark, strange, macabre, creepy, and bizarre. If you find a story or article online that you would like for me to share in the podcast, you can send it to me anytime at WeirdDarkness.com. Everything weird and dark is welcome. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by Horror Pack, four terrifying movies on Blu-ray or DVD delivered to your door every month. I'll tell you more about Horror Pack later in the show, or you can learn more now at WeirdDarkness.com. For those of you who have been asking about it, the gear is here. Click the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you'll find Weird Darkness t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, coffee mugs, phone cases, and more. If you're an official weirdo, take a look inside the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you might find something you can't live without. Coming up in this episode… A chat with a small boy at a wedding unexpectedly turns into a paranormal encounter. A female presence haunts a newly married Japanese couple. A con man teams up with a necromancer, and it does not bode well for either one of them. The old Lakeview Sanitarium, constructed in 1930 as a tuberculosis sanatorium, is now one of the most haunted places in Wisconsin. A young girl encounters a terrifying entity in the bathroom. Is a time portal hidden in the Arizona mountains near Mexico? One man swears to it. Plus, I'll tell you how you can receive the audiobook Fright Before Christmas – 13 Tales of Holiday Horror narrated by me absolutely free. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. About 30 years ago, a friend of a friend's sister was getting married, and I somehow found myself invited to the stag. I'd never been to the house before, and as we waited for the groom to arrive, the bride's mother insisted we have a cup of tea. We sat chatting about nothing in particular, 
when out of the corner of my eye I became aware of a young boy, perhaps seven or eight, dressed in a sailor suit, go into the kitchen, and thought nothing of it. As we sat, the boy came out of the kitchen and stood very politely beside my chair. I turned and said, Hello, what is your name? He very politely introduced himself as James, then chattered away for a couple of minutes about school, games, and the cat before announcing that he was going upstairs. Half an hour later, as we were leaving, I shouted up the stairs, Bye-bye, James! Our host looked startled and asked who James was. Turned out there were no children in the house, let alone one wearing a sailor suit. I never went back. When I first moved into the old house eight years ago, I was single and happy to score such a roomy place for such cheap rent. The owners were a lovely Japanese couple I had known for a long time. They were getting old and wanted to move to a newer, more convenient apartment that they could more easily manage. Since they knew me, they offered their big two-story house for relatively cheap rent, no traditional key money payment and no need of a damage deposit. They trusted that I would take pretty good care of the place. And it was a great place to live. At first. The owners had gone against the usual Japanese conventional understated style and had painted the outside a verdant green, which made it easy to spot on the street. Inside, I had two floors with eight rooms, four bedrooms, large bath and kitchen, and it even had a full-sized classroom attached where the owner's wife had taught traditional Japanese calligraphy to schoolchildren. The house was a great place to hold dinner parties with friends, and the band I was playing with could practice there if we went mostly acoustic and didn't play too loud. It was a nice private place to bring girls, and, most of all, it fulfilled my Midwest American need for space. Then, something that was sharing the space with me began to make its presence known. One expects an older house, made of wood, to mutter and groan as it warps and settles, but some noises began to be heard that didn't match the description of the usual old house sounds. One floorboard next to the bed would creak incessantly, as if someone were standing on it and pushing it non-stop with a heavy foot. Several times I would be awakened from sleep by a loud thwap on my pillow next to my head, as if someone were saying, wake up and notice me. Soon my pillow was getting thumped so often I would simply shout out, what do you want? I'm tired. Let me sleep. And then I would roll over and ignore it. One night I heard the beating of a large set of wings flying through the dark overhead, and I felt the rush of wind as they passed just above my face. I turned on the light expecting to see a bird, maybe an owl or a bat that had somehow gotten into the house, but there was nothing there. Many times I felt myself touched, my head, hair, or arms stroked with what definitely felt like a feminine touch. 
I had experienced ghostly happenings before, so I just accepted what was going on and went on about my business. Then I met my lovely wife, Tuesday in the Philippines, married her, and brought her to Japan to live with me in the big green house. And the weird happenings began to escalate almost immediately. The first month she lived there, my wife would have frightening nightmares every night that she slept in the bedroom. When she fell asleep in the living room, they wouldn't happen. She began to be afraid of even going into the bedroom alone. One lazy Sunday, my wife Tuesday and I both fell asleep in the bedroom, drowsing side by side on the bed. All of a sudden, my eyes snapped open and I found myself wide awake as if awakened by an alarm, my body tense as if to ward off an attack. I looked up to see a woman standing above my wife Tuesday as she slept, crouching low over her with a gentle smile on her face. She was Asian-looking, perhaps in her early 30s. She had long black hair and was wearing a red dress with black designs on the blouse and skirt. Tuesday began to shout out in her sleep as another nightmare hit her, and the woman bent lower as if to touch Tuesday or caress her. Something about the slow, silent way she moved made me very uncomfortable. What do you want? I shouted, and she looked up, smiled at me, and faded away from sight. Tuesday remained asleep, but her face was peaceful now, as the nightmare seemed to have gone away with the woman in the red dress. The next day, I led Tuesday into the bedroom and attempted to talk to the ghost lady. Listen, I said to the empty half of the room where I had seen her before. We are living here now. I don't know who you are or what you want, but we would like to live here peacefully and in comfort. We expect that you want the same. Please, let us live here peacefully. Don't bother us and we won't bother you. After that, the nightmares stopped for a time and Tuesday was able to sleep undisturbed in the bedroom. In the following two and a half years that we stayed in the greenhouse, we experienced many more strange encounters, not only with the lady, but with what seemed to be other presences as well. It would take too long to write about all of them, but I will list the most impressive ones here. One day, as I was lying on the sofa in the living room, I looked up to see a woman with long black hair walking away from me into the bedroom. Thinking it was Tuesday, I began talking to her as she disappeared into the room. Then, through another door leading to the kitchen came Tuesday, asking, Who are you talking to? Coming home one evening after work in a taxi, I looked up as the cab pulled up in front of our house. I saw a woman entering the gate to our house and assumed it was Tuesday. I paid the cab driver and rushed forward to greet my wife only to find the gate closed, the front door locked, and no one there. For a while, the floorboard next to the bed continued to squeak and groan without stop all night long, as if someone were standing on it and kicking it with a shoe. After a few months, it stopped. We began to hear the sound of someone moving around upstairs when there was no one there, the sound of walking and furniture being moved. The board and the ceiling above the dining table in the living room then began to squeak incessantly as if someone were upstairs jumping on it. For a period of about two months, 
we began to experience what we called the midnight party in our living room. During that time, on an almost nightly basis, at exactly 12.30 a.m., two of the chairs facing each other at the dining table would begin to move and squeak, as if two people were sitting in them across the table from each other. Each time the squeaking would last for exactly half an hour and then stop. As I have mentioned before, I have experienced ghostly happenings on many occasions. Without feeling particularly threatened, but something about the midnight party frightened me very badly. At first, I would walk right up to the chairs as they moved and stare at them, attempting to see anything that might explain what was happening. But I couldn't bring myself to touch them to make them stop. I felt a cold chill run through my body. My hair stood up on end and I had to leave the room. After reoccurring every night for about two months, the midnight party suddenly stopped happening and the chairs never moved again. My wife Tuesday was relaxing on the living room sofa when she suddenly found herself unable to move. She then felt a pair of hands running up and down her leg, steadily stroking it with soft fingers. She tried to move to make the hands stop touching her, but in classic Kanishibari style, she struggled to get free but could not. Finally, she screamed at the top of her voice. The hands went away and she was free to move. I was sitting across the room at the time and was startled by her screaming. I asked her what was wrong and she told me what had happened. In what may or may not be a related incident, shortly afterwards she developed a blood clot or deep vein thrombosis in that leg. Thrombosis is an old person's disease, very rare in someone of the age of 28 as she was then. It required many trips to the hospital, intense medication, and made it difficult for her to walk or work for the next six months. She is sure the two incidents are connected. I am not so sure. Tuesday had a particularly frightening dream in which she saw a woman standing across the street looking at her through the window. I'm not leaving, the woman shouted. I'm here to stay. She moved closer until she was looking directly in the window at Tuesday. I'm here to stay, she shouted again. We were eating dinner together, my wife Tuesday, our daughter and I, when suddenly the cap off an almost empty bottle of ketchup popped straight up in the air and flew across the room. Our daughter, being so young, laughed because she thought it was funny. For her sake, we laughed too, but I could see the uneasy look in Tuesday's eyes. Dr. John D. looked every bit like a wizard. By the end of his life, he had a flowing white beard and wore a skullcap over his thinning hair. He probably would not have looked out of place at Hogwarts. Edward Kelly, his sidekick, was an altogether different sort of character. He was a necromancer, a confidence trickster, and a commoner who used his ability to talk his way into money and power. One died an old man, living out his final years in relative obscurity back in England, while the other died a violent death 
falling from a high window while making an escape attempt from Prague Jail. During his wanderings across Europe, Dee met many famed people, including Cornelius Agrippa, another very famous magician. Agrippa and Dee investigated natural magic and telepathy together. Queen Mary of England invited Dee, whose fame as an astrologer had spread widely, to cast a horoscope for her forthcoming marriage. Mary's sister Elizabeth was imprisoned at that time and Dee also drew her a horoscope. The two became friends. Once again, Dee was in hot water, though, as he was accused of trying to murder Queen Mary using black magic. He was eventually acquitted, and when Elizabeth was crowned, she invited him back to her court. In the years that followed, Dee and his wife started to have strange dreams about contacting spirits. As a result of this, and his general interest in the esoteric, he tried using a magic mirror and other scrying instruments to attempt contact with the spirits. However, Dee was forced to conclude that he wasn't that good at scrying, and so he hired others to do it for him while he took notes of the communication. This was how he met Edward Kelly. Edward Kelly was a rogue who had already had his ears clipped as punishment for some crime that he'd committed. He was a conman and a trickster, but he too had an interest in magic and the occult, and he's reputed to have engaged in necromancy and to have raised the freshly dead body of a young woman, reanimated it using black magic, and then questioned it about the whereabouts of a small fortune. Dee was probably aware of his new colleague's reputation, and so he made Kelly promise not to work with evil spirits. After meeting a Polish nobleman at Elizabeth's court, the pair was invited to Poland, where the nobleman funded their continued experimentation with spirit communication, as well as the far more potentially profitable venture of alchemy. Rumors abounded of Dee and Kelly turning various base metals into gold using a mysterious red powder they had developed, but in fact, these may have just been rumors, as after two years, the Polish nobleman went broke supporting the pair. From there, they went to Prague and the court of Rudolf, who at the time had gathered a host of famous alchemists and magicians. However, they were accused of sorcery again by the Pope and had to leave Prague, eventually settling in Trebon, in what is now the Czech Republic, yet again supported by a rich nobleman. It is here that a truly bizarre event took place. Kelly claimed that the spirit Madimi had instructed Dee and Kelly to share their wives with each other. Dee was married to a much younger and almost certainly attractive woman, and one has to believe that Kelly, the con man, saw his opportunity. Initially, Dee and his wife refused, and the pair went their separate ways. However, Dee must have agreed in the end, as a document was signed by all four, swearing to carry out all the commands of the angels. This event must have been deeply traumatic, and one wonders if Dee didn't begin to suspect Kelly of manipulation, as, not surprisingly, their relationship soured. Dee and his wife returned home to England, where Elizabeth I gave him the wardenship of Christ's College Manchester, and he eventually died peacefully at age 81. As for Kelly, he was killed, making an escape bid from a Prague prison where it seems his luck had finally run out.
onlyinyourstate.com just featured an interesting article that chilled our team to the bone. The story of an old sanitarium located at the top of a hill that is the second highest point in Dane County, Wisconsin. The old Lakeview Sanitarium. Constructed in 1930 as a tuberculosis sanatorium and general hospital for Dane County, it looks a bit like a sprawling Art Deco mansion if you don't really know any better. Out of use for that purpose since 1966, this area has come to be known for its strange happenings. Surrounded by woods, it seems no one in the Madison area is without a spooky story to share about Sanitarium Hill. In daylight, the sanitarium can be deceiving and reading about its origins makes it sound like a lovely place. Isolated from the general public but in fresh air, it was home to up to 100 tuberculosis patients at a time. Now, the building is home to the Dane County Department of Health and Human Services, and the hill out front is known as one of the best sledding hills in town. Maybe it's because it is still in use, but folks say it's not the building that's haunted, but the woods behind it where you'll find paranormal activity. Before the sanitarium was built there, the spot overlooking the lake would have been considered sacred to the Native Americans who lived in the area. So the people who feel unhappy vibes and displaced spirits might be connecting with those who passed long before the sanitarium was there. If the city did indeed build on an ancient burial ground, the activity here could go back for centuries. There's a cemetery that abuts the woods where people report cold spots unexplained mists and general unease or feeling as though they're being watched. But it's actually the woods themselves that seem to be the center of possibly nefarious acts that have led to paranormal activity. There are stories that say the giant smokestacks attached to the building were actually the outlets of a crematorium where the bodies of deceased patients were burned. A large depression in the ground near the smokestacks is said to be an actual underground tunnel where sanitarium workers moved the bodies and sometimes stored them. It is said they couldn't burn too many bodies without drawing notice. They were also concerned with putting too much smoke in the air and affecting the patients who were still alive at the sanitarium. People who have walked through here report hearing voices, and some say they have captured recordings. There are also feelings of being stalked, hair being pulled and other unexplained occurrences. There is an abandoned building that used to be a nurse's headquarters that abuts the side of the building that's still in use. Though many windows are missing, there are often lights left on and red-lit exit signs that add to the eerie feeling of the building. Visitors report an apparition at the door to this building. This took place when we lived in San Jose. It was 1988 and I was living at home with my parents. Both of them worked, so I spent a lot of time at home. This took place during the summer. I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth, I was nowhere near the sink, and it actually turned on by itself and turned off again, just like that. I got my toothbrush, looked in the mirror, and saw nothing. 
I looked again and saw a white glare in the mirror that was behind me. I turned around and nothing was there. No one was home with me. Later that night, when I had to go to bed, I was restless and kept thinking about the bathroom incident. It was so strange and really freaked me out. I put the blanket over my head, but my feet were sticking out and I felt as if someone was in the room with me. I could just feel someone looming over me. I felt someone was grabbing my toes gently. I was too scared to look. I couldn't move. It felt like I was paralyzed. I could feel someone on the bed with me. I was so scared, it felt like someone was on top of me. I tried to scream, but it was holding my throat. I was still under my blankets. It was still on me. I kept trying to scream, but I could not. I also heard footsteps in my room. It finally stopped. It left. This only happened once, but it was enough to make me a believer in all things paranormal. I asked my parents if anything strange happened to them. Nothing had. I didn't give them any details about this incident. But I am sure it happened. Up next, hunters in Arizona say it's true that they have discovered a doorway to the gods, an interdimensional portal that can alter time. But first, if you're a subscriber and fan of the show, please post a rating and review of Weird Darkness in the iTunes Store. Everyone who leaves a review automatically receives the audiobook Fright Before Christmas – 13 Tales of Holiday Horror, narrated by yours truly through the month of November 2017 while supplies last. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Or is it? Christmas Eve is a night of mystery and magic, but not always in ways we expect. Things lurk in the shadows, and they're not the least bit jolly or merry. Let's just say some presents are better left unopened. Tis the season to be screaming along with our 13 tales of holiday horrors. Ghosts, monsters, demons, and more. This Christmas, be careful what you wish for. Fright Before Christmas – 13 Tales of Holiday Horror Hear a free sample of this book or purchase it for your own collection by clicking the link in the program notes. But if you'd like to receive this audiobook absolutely free, all you have to do is post a rating and review of Weird Darkness in iTunes. Just post your review, then send me a screenshot to let me know that you've done so. And a huge thanks to all of the official weirdos who have posted reviews this week. News Justin says, I enjoy every story. The stories are interesting and creeps me out and not a repeat story that can be found on other spooky story podcasts. His voice and volume adds to the stories. Thank you again. Angel87 Tokyo says, Super suspenseful. I absolutely love Weird Darkness and it is the highlight of my day. I'm often late to work because I get so into the stories 
and Darren Marlar has the best voice, really keeps you interested, absolutely amazing. Keep it up. I'll keep listening. Keep it spooky, guys. Weirdo for Life says, Great podcast. This podcast is number one. I cannot wait for the new episodes. Darren's voice and storytelling skills are top-notch. Thank you for the entertainment. The Dex says, Quality Produced. This is one of the few really quality produced shows around. The stories read on this show are well done and professionally created, and this isn't the only show Mr. Marler does. Well worth searching out the other podcasts he creates. I will be a subscriber for as long as he does this show. Juggalo Fasho says, Since discovering this podcast, I haven't been able to stop listening. I truly love this. And Jay Sanchez0242 says, Fantastic. Great narration, awesome stories. Podcast has had me hooked since day one. Again, thanks to everybody who has posted a review and a rating for Weird Darkness on iTunes. If you haven't done so, please do so now. Leaving a rating and a review helps get the podcast noticed by others, and it lets iTunes know that it's a podcast worth taking a look at and possibly highlighting for others to see. So thanks to everybody who is rating and reviewing the show and sharing a link to the podcast on their own social media. You are appreciated more than you can possibly know. In the meantime, let's step back into the weird darkness. Treasure hunters who visited a canyon hidden deep in southeastern Arizona near the Mexican border say that they saw strange lights in the sky and stones falling from the heavens. Most intriguing about their story is that they encountered a mysterious stone archway that can alter time at random. Is it a time portal hidden in the Arizona mountains? The following story was reported by treasure hunter Ron Quinn who, together with his friends, visited the mysterious canyon. They insist the story is true. This fascinating journey into the unknown began in early 1956 and still remains an unsolved mystery today. It all began during a two-year adventure into southern Arizona in search of lost mines and hidden Spanish treasures. High among the rugged terrain bordering Mexico, my brother Chuck and I discovered a location where time itself is altered. This natural freak of nature lies deep within a region seldom visited by modern man. The reason I'm bringing this tale to light after all this time is because something in the works might affect this interesting place. Tucson Electric Power Company plans on building a 345,000-watt high-voltage transmission line from Tucson to Nogales, the line could come quite close to this site. When this line becomes active, what, if anything, will this enormous voltage do to this delicate location? Enhance the natural energy already lurking within it, or nothing? Only time will tell. The following stories all took place around this mysterious location. This all began after my release from the military. My brother Chuck asked if I'd be interested in taking an extended trip to Arizona to search for several of the legendary lost treasures allegedly hidden during the Spanish occupation. This ignited my adventurous spirit, so plans were made. 
We saved enough capital with the help of our parents for two years. I was 23, Chuck was 26. We left Tacoma, Washington on March 20, 1956. Our final destination was Aravesa, Arizona, a small desert hamlet of perhaps 70 residents. This old adobe village was located squarely in the center of the country harboring some of these well-known hidden treasures. About three weeks into this treasure game, Chuck and I were relaxing at camp one evening. Towards the south, the craggy peaks of the Tumacacori Mountains were silhouetted against the darkening sky. Our attention was directed towards two large balls of blue-green lights slowly descending behind the mountains several miles away. They were not flares, as no sound of aircraft broke the silence of the night, and both vanished within minutes. The following night, at precisely the same time, 8.05 p.m., the lights appeared once again near the identical location. These also disappeared behind the peaks. Several days later, Louis Romero, a local cowboy who rode for the Aravesa Ranch, stopped by. Over several weeks, we became friends and learned a great deal of the history about the area from him. While in Aravesa, we heard from the locals that if Louis tells you something, you can bet your life it's the truth. During one of his weekly visits, Louis told us many stories centering around the nearby mountains. Several bordered on the paranormal. After describing the odd lights we had seen, he smiled, saying he and others have spotted them since 1939 in the same location. Over the months, we saw them several more times. One day, as we were returning to Aravesa, we spotted an old truck parked beside the road with a flat tire. Not having a spare, the gentleman stood beside his vehicle trying to hitch a ride to the nearest service station. We picked him up and soon arrived at the Kinsley Ranch and gas station. After having the tire repaired, we returned John, an Indian, to his truck where we mounted the tire for him. John couldn't thank us enough, as not many white men had shown him such kindness. A month or so later, at camp, we spotted a rider approaching and were surprised to see that it was John. He told us that he was working temporarily for a local ranch, checking the fence lines. While talking in general about the surrounding country, Chuck mentioned we were treasure hunting. As a boy, John said he had heard many of the tales of lost mission gold and silver. He also believed some of the tales were true, as treasure was found in 1907 near Nogales. Later, John told us about a mysterious stone archway. Roy told him we came across such a formation south of camp. John's first words were, Did you walk through its opening? Walt answered, no. We noticed it while descending a slope, but paid little attention to the oddity. John told us around the 1800s three Indians were hunting and, upon returning to their village, discovered a stone archway. Being in a jubilant mood, they began chasing one another through the opening in a playful manner. Moments later, one jumped through but never emerged from the opposite side. Fearing they had entered some sacred ground of the gods, the remaining two fled the scene. Arriving at the village, they told the medicine man how their friend had vanished before their eyes. As the story spread, others journeyed to the high plateau to gaze upon the stone structure. Rocks and other items were tossed through, but nothing occurred, until an elderly woman approached. Tossing in a live rabbit, it suddenly 
vanished. The Indians backed off in fear and spread the story of this doorway to the gods as it came to be known. John himself had been to the site on many occasions. The only time he witnessed anything strange was around 1948. A big storm had blown in and the sky was filled with dark clouds in all directions. As he rode past the archway, he noticed the sky through its opening was blue. No clouds were visible. Dismounting, he walked cautiously toward the formation and peered through. The mountains on the other side hadn't changed, but the sky was clear. Looking around the corner of the structure, the sky was once again covered with dark clouds. Fear gripped him, and he rode off. Some believe John was looking into another time period through the portal. We asked John if the story was indeed true, why hadn't it been investigated? He replied that only his people knew of the story, as it had never been mentioned outside the tribe. The only reason he told us is because we had shown him kindness while he was stranded beside the highway. Curious, we decided to make another trip to the remote site with Roy Purdy and Walter Fisher, two fellow treasure hunters who were camping with us. It's a rugged climb, and the torturous craggy mountains play no favorites. Enter their domain, make an error, and you'll be added to the list of the injured and missing. This mysterious area is covered with windswept rock formations that dot the landscape. Searching further, we discovered an enormous deposit of geodes. The ground was littered with them. Some had broken open, revealing their crystal-lined interiors. As we approached the archway, the structure took on a menacing appearance. It stood beside a rocky slope and was perhaps seven feet high by five feet in width. Its columns measured approximately 15 inches in diameter and were made of andesite. Chuck jokingly tossed several rocks through, but nothing happened. Next, I placed my arm in. Roy, the superstitious member of our foursome, said I was flirting with danger if the story was true. Knowing his nature toward the unknown, I decided to play a joke. I suddenly yelled like something was pulling me through. Jumping back, I began laughing as Roy cussed me out. By now, we were all close friends, so no offense was taken. After several hours, we departed this interesting location, carrying a number of geodes. I remember glancing back at this lonely part of the world, wondering if there was truly something within the area that could alter time at random. Was it just the archway itself, or were other unknown natural forces at play? we would definitely discover the answer, at least to the time-altering question. It was roundup time on the Aravesa Ranch. That evening, Louie and several others were camping beside the coral just north of the mountains to get an early start the following morning. As they sat around having coffee and making small talk, Louie noticed how still the night was. Most evenings, one could hear the night sounds of the desert, but this time it was unusually quiet and the livestock seemed restless. As they were about to bed down, they suddenly heard the rumbling of approaching horses. As the sound grew closer, one could hear the clattering of hoofs among the rocks accompanied by the whinnying of many horses. As the sound increased, the boys dove for cover, expecting to see a herd of horses stampeding through camp. But as the rumbling reached the opposite side of a nearby canyon, it abruptly ended. 
The following morning, they searched, but found no evidence of horses. Louis mentioned wild horses once roamed the country around the turn of the century. Were Louis and the others caught on the outer edge of some time change? It turns out they were near our mysterious archway. Before continuing, I'd like to set forth a theory told to us by a party well-versed in the field of the strange and paranormal. Perhaps an enormous deposit of geodes beneath the surface might be affecting time in some mysterious manner, when all the natural elements, the vibration of the crystals, the electricity in the atmosphere, and the magnetic fields in the Earth come together at the precise moment, laws of nature are turned topsy-turvy and things occur beyond our understanding. It could be like dropping a stone into a pool of calm water. The archway being the stone and the waves expanding outward could be the natural forces. These might reach anywhere from several yards to a mile. Depending upon the activation, everything within this radiating circle could be thrown into a different period of time. When it fades, things return to normal. This story was told by a reliable rancher and also took place within the shadows of the puzzling archway. It involves the appearance of a Spanish padre long since dead, a ghost, or perhaps not. Several hundred years earlier, a Jesuit priest, whose name has long since been forgotten, built a small mission east of Erevesa. The residents gave their most treasured possessions to him for safekeeping, as they feared robbery. These were hidden somewhere near the church grounds. One morning, a Mexican woodchopper found the elderly padre dead. After he was put to rest, the villagers suddenly realized he was the only one who knew the location of their valuables. They searched, but nothing was ever found. Over the years, many cowboys and others have reported seeing a dark-robed figure walking near the site of the old mission, which has long since crumbled back into the dry earth. The description given resembles that of a Spanish padre. One rancher told us quite frankly, Nobody will ever convince me otherwise. I know what I saw that afternoon. The figure wasn't any ghost. It walked across a wash, disturbing the gravel and casting a long shadow. The figure slowly became transparent, shimmered several times, then vanished. Again, was the witness caught in another trick of time produced by the sight? Or was he himself back in the 18th century, watching the Padre going about his daily rounds? Too bad our rancher didn't see the mission. That would be hard evidence that he wasn't in his own time. Another mind-boggling story involves two cowboys out searching for a sick bull. Both separated and rode off in different directions. One rider paused atop a hill searching the country below with his binoculars. Suddenly, he felt a stone bounce off his hat. Turning, he expected to find his companion had tossed it jokingly, but nobody was there. Another stone hit his arm, but once again, nothing was seen. While scanning the terrain again, he spotted his friend several hundred yards below. In the distance, he saw the bull. Waving, he shouted to his partner, signaling him which direction to go. While descending the hill, he spotted a group of six riders traveling eastward. They rode in single file and were about a half mile off. Stopping, he looked through his field glasses and was amazed at what he saw. His description of the horsemen resembled pictures he had seen of Spanish soldiers with tunics, lances, and helmets. 
he followed their movements until the scene shimmered and faded. Once again, this occurred near the Archway's realm. A column of soldiers traveling east, the only fort in that direction was the Presidio, located at Tubac during the Spanish occupation. During the mid-1940s, Louis and another ranch hand came upon the skeletal remains of what appeared to be that of an ancient Indian. Beside the body was a rotted bow. The Indian's clothing was of animal skins and a leather moccasin clung to one foot. The skull and one leg were missing. Could this have been the Indian who vanished so long ago? The body was discovered less than a mile south of our strange location. They buried the remains nearby, marking the grave with several large rocks. Louis noted that the body did not resemble 200-year-old remains. Before hearing this tale, I often wondered what became of the Indian allegedly swallowed by the archway. If the portal was visible from the opposite side, why didn't he come back through? He might have never noticed a change and to him his friends had disappeared. Not finding them, he eventually returned to his village and perhaps also found it missing. Perhaps he was somehow transported forward in time and for some unknown reason died on that lonely hillside only to be found by Louis years later. One day, Walt and Roy had their own weird experience near the stone portal. They returned there because Walt wanted to collect some geodes for friends in Tucson. Looking toward the archway, both saw it appear to shimmer. According to Walt, this lasted several minutes before it slowly faded. During this period, both felt a strange pressure within their ears. Roy said, that's it, Walt, I'm out of here. After gathering a number of geodes, both left with Roy leading the way, rather fast. During the summer months, temperatures can reach 110 degrees. The heat waves dancing off a flat surface can make objects appear to shimmer while looking through them. But this was mid-January, and the temperature was around 60 or so. Old Roy would never again return to the site, no matter how we tried to persuade him. Was the shimmering and ear sensation the beginning of some activation that never reached its full potential? Seeing the expression on Roy's face after he returned to camp? Take my word, it happened. A number of individuals have disappeared from the unfriendly rugged hills over the years. Did some make the unfortunate mistake of entering the portal at the wrong time? The following suggests that possibility. While the four of us were checking out an old silver workings, we came upon a deserted miners' camp that Louis had told us about weeks earlier. Everything was left behind – rotted clothing, tools, drill steel, old blankets, and cooking utensils. Everything was there to maintain a functional camp. By the looks of several items, I'd say the site was active during the 1930s. It looked as though somebody just walked away and never returned – or couldn't. The camp was almost a mile from the bizarre site high above. Did this party fall victim to it, or did he become discouraged with mining and abandoned camp? I find this highly unlikely. We also heard a story about a lone prospector who arrived each October and remained until spring. This continued for several years. One day, he vanished, leaving his horse, wagon, and camp behind. It was located near a saddle in the mountains, just north of you-know-what. A body was never found. 
We visited this site and found a deep shaft nearby with numerous open cuts on a hill. Was he prospecting or treasure hunting? It was rumored that some bandits' loot, two bags of gold coins, was buried within this area. Stories like this keep people like us searching. Another close encounter occurred about 14 months into our treasure game, a game that seemed to be going nowhere. While in Aravesa picking up needed supplies, we met three other treasure hunters. They were in the area for a month, seeking the famous lost treasure of Coretta Canyon, hidden by the fleeing Padres from the Tumacacori Mission during the Great Pima Uprising of 1751. We invited them to stop by camp and gave them directions. Several weeks later, they arrived and had an interesting story to tell. By chance, while traveling overland, they camped near the mouth of the canyon leading to the strange area. We discovered this when one pointed to the campsite on his map. While relaxing one evening after a long, tiring search for this elusive treasure, they heard a sound like rain hitting the tent. Stepping outside, they saw the sky was clear. All at once, a shower of hundreds of small stones came cascading down around them. Most were the size of a large pea, were reddish-brown, and resembled hematite and iron ore. Picking several up, they noticed they were quite warm to the touch. Their camp wasn't located near any high cliffs where the stones could have originated. George, a member of the group, jokingly said, Perhaps we're camping on some ancient Indian burial ground and the spirits want us to leave. He'd read an article about an incident similar to this occurring on a burial ground somewhere in the Midwest. By now, one has to admit something quite out of the ordinary encircles this strange site. I won't definitely say their encounter with the warm stones had anything to do with our odd out-of-time region. Indian spirits or not, something weird occurred while they sat relaxing in their tent. After our two-year adventure ended without finding buried gold or lost mines, we returned to Washington State for almost a year. We then moved to Arizona, making Tucson our home. Most of our adult lives have been one long adventure after the other. If Roy and Walt arrived at our door with some wild treasure lead, we'd be off with them the next day. To live such a lifestyle, we all remained single. We were one big, happy family of devil-may-care adventurers. The strange experience I had occurred on October 14, 1973. During one of our two-week adventures, I found myself near the canyon that leads towards that oddball site. Not having been there in almost four years, I decided to pay it a visit. The canyon was just as rugged as ever. After climbing and slipping among the boulders, I finally arrived at the steep hill leading to the site above. It's a long, weary climb, so I paused for a breather halfway up. I sat on the slope facing north. To my left, the west, the steep hill followed the canyon perhaps a mile, but something was definitely wrong. Below to my left was a canyon where none had existed. Curious, I made my way down, entering it from the east side, so I thought. I soon discovered I was in the same canyon that led toward the hill I had just scaled. I was more than 250 yards back down the canyon on a different slope, and now I was facing south. I had mysteriously been transported to the new location. 
thinking I was looking west, I was really looking east, seeing the canyon I had just hiked. There was no way on earth I could have reached this other slope while climbing the original hill. Knowing where I was, suddenly I knew why this had happened. Any skepticism I had about this crazy sight vanished. I was apprehensive about continuing and should have departed the area immediately, but curiosity led me on. I made the grueling climb once again, passing the spot where, minutes before, I had been resting. For those of you who've been asking for it, the gear is here. You can click the store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you'll find Weird Darkness t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, coffee mugs, phone cases, and more. If you're an official weirdo, take a look inside the store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you might find something you'll like to help spread the darkness. This show is sponsored by Horror Pack. If you're a true fan of horror, you'll love Horror Pack as they send you four terrifying movies on Blu-ray or DVD each month. Every horror fan wants to build up the best collection they can. Horror Pack feeds your need with a monthly mystery box delivered right to your door. Horror Pack is the most convenient and exciting way to grow your horror collection, sending the best in mainstream and indie horror. Slice open your Horror Pack and you'll find four brand new movies carefully selected by the Horror Pack team. Subscribe today and soon Horror Pack will be arriving at your door. Join the fun and the fear. Click the Horror Pack banner at WeirdDarkness.com. Do you have a true tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Again, if you like the show, please post a review on iTunes. I'll give you a shout-out in the next episode and you'll also automatically receive the audiobook right before Christmas. 13 Tales of Holiday Horror narrated by me through the month of November 2017 while supplies last. So be sure to leave your review today. Just post your review, then send me a screenshot to let me know you've done so. All stories in this episode are purported to be true. The Boy in the Sailor Suit was submitted to MyHauntedLife2.com by Alan. The female presence that haunted the greenhouse was taken from the book Kanashibari True Encounters with the Paranormal in Japan by Thomas Bowerly, The Wife Swapping Elizabethan Magicians, and The Terrifying Madison Wisconsin Sanitarium were both written by G. Michael Vasey. The San Jose Bathroom Spirit Stalker was submitted by Jan Bennett Jones. And Mysterious Interdimensional Portal That Can Alter Time is Hidden in the Arizona Mountains is posted at MessageToEagle.com. You can find links to all of this episode's stories and the books that they're taken from in the show's description. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Dumb crooks, celebrity morons, idiot politicians, and other true stories of individuals. I'm Darren Marlar, the creator and host of Daily Dose of Weird News. 
Every weekday, I bring you a new episode highlighting some of the stories you don't get with other news outlets. A new podcast every weekday. Get the podcast today for Apple, Android, or your favorite podcasting app at dailydoseofweirdnews.com.